1: It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for joining us for today's show. Before we get started, before I introduce the panel, uh, a quick note to some of you who uh, sometimes listen to this show when it's on the radio and other times listen to our podcast. Um, We've gotten uh, uh, either calls or emails, uh, Facebook posts from some of you saying you've been having trouble uh, finding the most recent podcasts, and we know there's been an issue we just at gpb uh launched a brand new website and uh, on one of those platforms and only one of our podcast platforms there's been some trouble integrating uh uh, our show with that particular podcast platform i think that's npr1 sam bermas dawes our producer is working with our technology folks to try to straighten that out but but i will tell you you should definitely be able to get the podcast if that's how you want to listen by going to Apple Podcasts or any of the other uh, readily available platforms uh, that you can hear podcasts. At least I hope that's the case. If you're having problems on those other platforms, I hope you'll let me know because we want to resolve that as quickly as possible. Okay, just wanted to get that out of the way before we launch into today's program. It's Wednesday, which means the uh, Atlanta Journal Constitution political reporter Greg Bluestein is uh, with us today. Um, at it. I can see. I, we watch each other on WebEx. We can, unfortunately can't share that with you out there. The technology doesn't allow it to do us, but we can all see each other as we do the show. Greg, you're sitting in your house. It looks like for today's show.
2: I'm in my basement with the kids upstairs running around as usual. <laughs> Of course.
1: Thank you. It's good to have you uh, here today. We're also, we're bringing back the, uh, we got the A-team. We've got most of the A-team with us today. The uh, political science experts who uh, started the year with us talking about primary results and upcoming primaries. And of course, now we've expanded to talking about about a lot more than elections. But we have with us today three of the A-team. Professor Andra Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University and director of the uh, James Weldon Johnson Institute uh, uh, for Race and, and Change. Have I, I, I'm not, I don't have that title exactly correct. The James mm-hmm. Weldon Johnson Institute. Give, give me the formal name, Andra. Uh, for
3: the study of race and difference.
1: Study, study of race. Thank you for being here today. We're glad to have you. Um, Your colleague uh, is with us as well, Professor uh, Alan Abramowitz, uh, political science professor at Emory University. Alan is uh, one of the guys we turn to a lot as we watch elections proceed. Uh, I read him quite frequently in uh, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. You have a great relationship with them, Alan, I know, and are posting fairly regularly to Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball. Tell everybody out there, by the way, for people, I think most people who are listening to this show are political junkies, so they know about what he does. But tell us, tell everybody about him. About uh, Larry?
4: Yeah. yeah. Larry, well, Larry Sabato is a uh, professor and head of the uh, Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. Uh, Andre also knows him very well. And uh, he puts sure. out this, uh, uh, a political newsletter called uh, Sabato's Crystal Ball. Uh, It usually comes out on Thursday mornings, but uh, in the run-up to the election, he's putting it out. They're coming out two or three times a week. So you can subscribe to it. It's free. Uh, Lots of great information in there.
1: All right. Well, we're talking about Larry Sabato. Uh, Andra, he was your advisor when you were in in university? He was
3: my undergrad advisor, yeah. (laughs) We
1: mentioned him because he really... (laughs) He's one of those guys who people watch very, very closely. Uh, his, his predictions for upcoming elections or the trends that he's spotting are important. Um, we're also joined today, I'm very happy to say, by uh, Professor uh, Amy Steigerwald, who teaches political science at U- Georgia State University. And in addition, of course, you know this from hearing uh, Amy on our show in the past, uh, has a particular interest in women in electoral politics uh, has done extensive research on uh, constitu- on the Constitution, on federal law. So, uh, Amy, you've been able to wear many hats for us on this show, and I'm glad you're with us today.
0: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Also a fan of Atlanta United. I didn't watch last night's match, but apparently, as you said, before we went on the air, Amy, it was <sighs> just as well I did. And it, it
0: thankfully Dreadful. the score was only 1-0, not in our favor, but it was –
1: we we are in a rebuilding period. <laughs> okay, all right. And well, are well, we're not in a rebuilding people. period.
0: George Bellow looks great, yeah. however, so I'm totally giving him a shout out. He's looking fantastic. Okay. He just needs everybody else to step up. <sighs>
1: okay. In. Well, we're not in a rebuilding period here at uh, Political Rewind. <clears throat> we are fully ready to go. Greg Bluestein, let me start with you, um, and and let's talk about the uh, Democratic Party. No, I'm sorry, before we go to electoral politics, let's talk about another matter. C.T. Vivian is lying in state in the rotunda of the state capitol today, Greg, and he, you know, one of, he was 95 years old when he died on Friday. One of the uh, somewhat lesser known civil rights leaders, but as a young man, he stood side by side with Martin Luther King Jr., with John Lewis, With Andrew Young, I mean, he was always kind of the intellectual of the movement. And he he was there from the very earliest days and involved in all the important activities of the movement. Greg, one of the things I found fascinating in reading about his his lying in state today is that uh, the article I read in the AJC actually pointed out that in 1968, when Dr. Mm -hmm. King was assassinated, Lester Maddox refused a request that Martin Luther King Jr. lie in state at the state capitol. And it wasn't until 38 years later that an African-American Coretta Scott King was honored with a, a lying in state in the rotunda. And I think that tells us so much about what that civil rights movement, how far, how, how, how far we've come in terms of recognizing these great leaders and in wanting to acknowledge them, not far enough.
2: Greg? Yeah, I, said, I kind of said it all. Um, and, and to think that the last person in Lion's Day was former State Senator Leroy Johnson, who was the first black member elected to Georgia's Senate since Reconstruction. And right before him was, was former Governor Zell Miller. Um, so it shows you just how, how, how Georgia's dynamics have really changed. Um, Andra,
1: you know, we also, of course, are waiting for funeral arrangements uh, uh, for John Lewis, and the family has been very respectful. They did not want to interfere with uh, the C.T. Vivian funeral, which will actually be held uh, uh, tomorrow uh, at uh, Providence Missionary Baptist Church. Our good friend Dr. Gerald Durley will preside over what will be a private funeral service. Um, But, but Andra, one of the things that has struck me, And please, if you want to say something about C.T. Vivian, I welcome that. But I'm also interested in hearing one of the things that's been so fascinating, in addition to the history that we've read of what John Lewis accomplished in his lifetime, there have been so, one of the things that's been so moving is all of the ordinary folks, like all of us, who in one way or another had an encounter with John Lewis. He touched us in some way. The uh, paper had this wonderful spread of just ordinary people who had their photographs made with John Lewis over the years, little children. Uh, it, it Remarkable. And I invite you to comment on either of those great leaders.
3: You know, that's something that I I've certainly thought about. Um, you know, it was asked about this for Emory's own newspaper, and that was one of the things that I, that I noted, that I think this loss is particularly poignant because these are people who lived and breathed and walked among us. And I don't know if Atlantans appreciate the extent to which the heroes of the 20th century civil rights movement kind of just operated among us. Like, it's not uncommon to be able to, you know, run into John Lewis in the grocery store or to have an encounter in your studio with Andy Young, who has offices in the GPD building, right? Like, these are commonplace. And I don't know. I think we take them for granted. Um in the same way that we take for granted sometimes the lessons that you you know wish you was learned at your grandparents' knee, and then all of a sudden if you want a recipe or if you want a story, right, you want to go talk to them, and they may be gone by the time you actually wish that you had those stories. And, you know, I was thinking about my own interactions with the both of them. So I met Reverend Vivian when Emory Libraries asked me to interview him for a program that they were doing right after he won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, and you know, I think it's important to point out that he was doing – before, like Greensboro, like he, they didn't get a whole lot of attention because it happened before the apex of the movement. They didn't get attention because it happened in the Midwest. It didn't happen in the South. Um, but you know, one of the things that I always treasure is going to the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and when you see the wall of the mugshots of people who, uh, you know, who were arrested because of the yeah. Freedom Rides. Reverend Vivian, you see John Lewis, you recognize him immediately, but also Reverend Vivian is there and he's grinning. I mean, it's just sort of like the joy of what he was doing and the cause that I think is is is, is really important. I was, um, I pulled out uh, John Lewis's uh, memoir off my own shelf and I remembered the day that I bought it because I think I got an autograph copy for a friend. I don't think unless it's at work and I've just misplaced it, which I've been known to do with books. Like, I didn't get my own copy autographed, and I'm like, that was really stupid of me um, these days. So, yeah, I mean, I have really fond memories, and I know that this, it was their time, but I just hope that we remember their legacy and do and model sort of, like, their behavior in our own lives going forward.
1: Uh, Amy, first, and then I want to get you in here, too, Alan. Uh, Andra put her finger on something so important, I think. We were so privileged here in our community. To see these giants, I mentioned on the show on Monday that I moved from Chicago in 1983 and I watched the civil rights movement unfold while I was in high school and college from a distance. And when I came here, Amy, and actually got to meet John Lewis, Andrew Young, who I feel very fortunate to now call 35, 36 years later a really good friend, Um, Hosea Williams, uh, uh C.T. Vivian, uh, Ralph Abernathy, uh, back then when he was still alive. We are very fortunate, Amy, that these people walked among us, and we knew them almost as neighbors.
0: It's so true. I mean, Andra stated it really beautifully, and it is that it's those common interactions and in the fact that, so um, I unfortunately didn't know Reverend Vivian, but got to meet uh Representative Lewis quite a number of times and he was so incredibly giving to everyone. Um he allowed me to interview him for my book and as his staff is trying to get him to go do something, he was like, no, 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 I'm not done and really, you know, wanted me to see his balcony and take a picture out there. And it was sort of like but he did this with everybody. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just you know, I am one of his constituents, but or was, I guess. But um he would do that with everybody and I guess what I so hope, though, is that we don't forget all of the things that he was fighting so hard with that we haven't actually accomplished. We, we give him, as we should, lots and lots of praise for all of the work that he's done and all the things that were accomplished that he was a part of, including getting the Civil Rights Act passed and the Voting Rights Act and the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, but it's also not... Finished, and what I hope is that we don't see it as something in the past, but recognize that it's still an ongoing fight and an ongoing struggle. And that, for example, he was one of the leaders of trying to get what's you know a pending HR uh, four in the House to reauthorize and to strengthen the Voting Rights Act because these are still issues today.
4: A- absolutely true. Um, I I think there's a tendency sometimes when Uh, we lose uh, these great uh, leaders, particularly leaders of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, to sort of, uh, I don't know, sort of sanitize their history uh, in the sense that uh, we we forget, in in the midst of all the the almost universal praise um, that we hear, we forget that they were very controversial in their time, uh, that the actions they were taking uh, were met with uh, intense resistance in opposition. Uh, and opposition. Uh, and, you know, of course, we know the history of John Lewis. He was beaten. He was jailed repeatedly. Uh, and, and this was true of many of the leaders. And Martin Luther King, obviously, was assassinated. And uh, even very recently, uh, John Lewis has been uh, very much in, in the vanguard of the of the fight to uh, to try to preserve voting rights, which uh, has seen some significant setbacks in recent years, and he was fighting very very hard uh, for that cause and 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 many others, uh, even in in his in his last days. And of course, he was a strong supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement, and and he was very, I think, taken by the protests uh, that we've seen, and and very encouraged by, by them, and spoke out in favor of them.
1: Um. Greg, let's pick up on that, uh, a, a couple of uh, threads of that. Uh, number one, when Amy points out that the work isn't finished, and obviously it's not, one of the uh, first responses that we heard from uh, any number, particularly of, of uh, civil rights uh, advocates, was that it is time to honor uh, John Lewis by, uh, by reauthorizing aspects of the Civil rights, uh, uh, Voting Rights Act that have since been abandoned. Uh, particularly uh, pre-clearance, which uh, it, it was uh, uh, finally uh, overturned by the Supreme Court for Congress can find a new way, new language for doing that that would, in fact, meet constitutional muster. When we lost pre-clearance, when the Supreme Court ruled that it had been done incorrectly, it changed the dynamic in so many ways, Greg, including things like the issues that we saw in 2018 Georgia elections. Could a polling place be closed without preclearance as just one simple example? Could you, in fact, use exact match to uh, 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 eliminate voters from the system? I think maybe exact match would be part of that. Certainly polling places was. It changed in many ways,
2: and the
1: threat of it carried through to 2018.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's that's why Democrats, uh, Democratic leaders, challenged Republicans who said such nice things about about Congressman Lewis's legacy and his impact and his agenda to say, okay, put your money where your mouth is right now and rename that portion of the Voting Rights Act, the reauthorization, in, in honor of, of John Lewis and pass it. Um, and so far, none have taken them up on, on their offer, um, but they're challenging Republicans to, to, you know, to, to, to honor his legacy in that way.
1: But, you know, Andre, I think Alan said another important thing. In pointing out that that in the days that they were fighting, those leaders were not universally loved, um, it, th- we have to be careful about how we talk about that, I think, and here's what I mean by that. Of course, we can look at the Sheriff Jim Clark, Bull Connor, and say that they were pernicious racists who beat down civil rights leaders, but... When Alan Abramowitz talks about this, we have to remember there were mainstream white Americans, and for that matter, some African Americans, who were equally appalled by what they saw in terms of the civil rights, who found Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Andrew Young to be troublemakers. And I think it's really important we don't minimize that. That's important to remember in terms of our history, especially as we're looking at the anti-racist moment, racism moment of, the, of, of now. Right, Andra?
3: So, yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to realize that, you know, we would all like to think of ourselves in the best light, Um, but oftentimes if we're really honest with ourselves, uh, people are fearful or people have subtle prejudices that would prevent their action. And so the self-reflection, the the self-interrogation involves not saying that 50 years later you recognize that, yes, Black people should have the right to vote and the cause of the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century was just, but... Also sort of recognizing, like, don't make yourself feel better by saying you would have been marching alongside Martin Luther King if you had the chance. Because if you were alive at the time and you didn't, then obviously you have to deal with what you did. And, 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 and a lot of us aren't as courageous um, as, as as they were, and they didn't take those risks. And uh, things were controversial or people were cautious or risk-averse in and, and, and a lot of those things. And I think kind of to get back to Greg's point – about what reauthoring authorizing preclearance means it also means that when we're coming up because the the issue that was at stake at in shelby county versus holder was the definition of who qualified for preclearance based on a past history um of disenfranchisement of 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 people based on race or or, or language Um, and i think it's a question of coming up with a preclearance sort of uh, calculation of who who qualifies for it that isn't cynical Um, And so like you could come up with something that could be completely cynical and actually doesn't get at the heart of Mm -hmm. what the Voting Rights Act was and has always been intended to do as well. And I have to admit, especially in 2013 with uh, President Obama and a Republican-controlled Congress— one of my biggest fears were that people would make claims like Mississippi shouldn't qualify for preclearance because look at all the black elected officials there that are largely a function of the fact that Mississippi has the highest concentration of African-Americans in the country. So, like, you can't completely keep black people out of office, like, you know, in those states. But if we're not going to have those types of honest discussions, then um, that kind of defeats the purpose of what the Voting Rights Act is about.
4: Yeah, so I, I think Andre made a couple of very important points there. One is we should never forget about the incredible courage, the physical courage that was shown by these civil rights leaders back in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, they put their 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 bodies and lives on the line. Uh, the Freedom Riders, you know, the, the, the people who marched with John Lewis across that bridge in Selma, uh, and, and so many other uh, uh, examples of that, and um you know, very very few of us, frankly, uh, are willing to do that sort of thing. Were willing, uh, uh, and are willing now to do that sort of thing, and that's what it took. It, w- it was that made it possible. Uh, the other thing I, I was going to mention is that uh, here we are in the midst of a presidential election where we have the incumbent president of the United States running what is, I think, widely acknowledged to be a an overtly racist campaign for reelection. And all you have to do is look at the television ads that the Trump campaign is running right here in Atlanta. I mean, first of all, it's not kind of telling that they're advertising that extensively here in Georgia. But those ads with these you know, uh, scenes of violence and threatening, vaguely dark-skinned people Invading homes, uh, uh, an elderly white woman uh, trying to call 911. You know, nobody answering the, the call. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, it's you know, this, this is very reminiscent of the sorts of messaging that we saw from uh, some uh, white candidates uh, uh, back back in the 1960s.
0: Yes, and I think the the only other thought. So John Lewis always used the term "good trouble." To say, yes, yeah, sometimes when you speak up, people don't want to hear it, but when you do it for the right reasons, when you do it for good reasons, embrace it. And so his sort of that notion, and I think it was a constant challenge to all of us, right, the, the points that Andra and Alan were bringing up, that It is hard to speak out. And at the time, I mean, if you look back actually at the polls of the civil rights movement sort of at the time, and even in like the 1970s, it was not this sort of kumbaya, everybody thought they were doing the right thing, everybody approved. In fact, it was, you know, very high disapproval ratings. And so we've sort of, you know, in a sense, almost whitewashed sort of what it was looked like and what went through and how violent and bloody it was. And I think that we need to keep, you know, remember to keep going. I mean, one of the things I'm always struck by also is that, so for example, Representative Lewis was one of the first national leaders to say, to come out in support of same-sex marriage and use Dr. King's okay. words to do so, saying this is the same fight and we need to keep that going. And so I think it's a, you know, I think he would hope that we would all remember that you need to keep making good trouble, especially when it's really important.
1: So, uh, Greg, before we move on, I do want to say that um, uh, uh, Eleanor Abramowitz's words uh, we 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 heard them loud and clear. I do want I do think we should point out that if we were to have Kelly Leffler on this show, which I hope we will at some point, if we were to have David Perdue on this show, Brian Kemp on this show, uh, they would argue that uh, there there that. I don't think they would disagree that there's an appeal to white voters, frankly, because Republicans seem to feel perfectly confident saying that. But I think they would argue that what's really going on here is that Republicans are trying to enforce law and order because of the violence that we've seen in the streets, whether it's a minority representation or not. Greg and then Andra on that.
2: Yeah. And that's been the argument that they've made uh, increasingly, including David Perdue in direct-to-camera ads recently. Um, saying this is about law and order, Governor Kemp calling out the National Guard, even over the objection of Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms just a few weeks ago to protect state sites, Uh, and it's really, uh, you know, echoing uh, the national message of President Trump's campaign ads that are appealing towards a sense of fear over that issue.
3: Okay, so there's so much that, that, that we could unpack here. So, um, and one of the pieces, uh, Bill, that you gave us to read, uh, it was a, a Republican lawmaker from Nebraska, um, you know, pointed out on Confederate naming that, you know, we're the party of Lincoln, we're not the party of Jim Crow, trying to point out again that, you know, segregationists in the Jim Crow era were Democrats, which I don't dispute. This is true. but. Um, so if the Republican Party isn't the party of Jim Crow, it is the party of the Southern strategy. And law and order as a moniker was a hallmark of that because it doesn't officially say stuff you know, about race or black people, but it does actually prime attitudes about race. And so if black and brown people are perceived as being more prone to criminality, then when you invoke that, you are, in fact, invoking Sort of notions about corralling people of color who just get in trouble all the time. So you can't say that that's not going on there. And it's funny. The first ad, the one where you call nine one one and it's going to take five year or five days or five years or whatever for somebody
2: to, um,
3: to come visit you. The first time I saw that ad, what I thought of was actually Pat Buchanan's ad in nineteen ninety six, where it was press one for English, press two for you know Spanish, press three for Chinese. And it's like it's the exact same thing. So, like, you can't – so I understand, like, and and most people, including people of color, want safe communities and they want police to be responsive to them. Um, They just don't want to get killed in the interaction over dumb stuff. Um, So, like, that's not what's being talked here. When you're playing to fear, you are playing to fear that is racialized. And so you've got to own that. And it's time for people to stop being defensive about stuff when you know exactly what you're doing.
1: Um, okay. I, I. Everybody wants to get in on this. I get it. I'm also late for getting to a break. But I do want to say that this is exactly the grounds on which this election in 2020 is going to be played out. Andra said it clearly. I mean, there are many Republicans out there who are perfectly content with uh, the law and order Southern strategy, the Nixon strategy that was so successful for him in 1968. And that's the. those are the grounds we're going to watch and report on. on uh, Political Rewind. I also want to say before we get to the break that what I love about this panel is I have had this carefully laid out agenda for how our conversation will unfold, but you are all way too smart, and it, you're more than uh, uh, welcome to continue talking about an issue that you think is pertinent, and we'll do a little more of that when we get back. This is Political Rewind. Political <laughs> Rewind Dr. Amy Seigerwald, Dr. Andrew Gillespie, Dr. Alan Abramowitz, and just playing Greg Bluestein, political <laughs> reporter from the AJC, uh, join us today. Alan, I'm going to give you a last chance. I know you really wanted to jump in, and then I want to move on to talk about how the Democrats picked their right. uh, uh, candidate to replace John Lewis on the ballot. But go ahead and yeah. finish off the conversation oh. before the break, Alan. So,
4: so point of information: the waiting if you time want was to. five. The waiting point was time was five days. Uh, on on the Trump ad in the ad, uh, yeah, in the yeah, ad. Yeah, sorry, I was getting so, confused about that. Uh, yeah, only five days, not five years. But uh, you know, I I just want to say that uh, Donald Trump is <laughs> is someone who has been you know playing to racial and ethnic fears um, for many many years, even before he ran for president. Uh, and and you know, this goes back to the start of his campaign. This goes back to the uh, you know, the, 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 the phony claims that Obama was born in Kenya, uh, his attacks on the Central Park 5, you know, just, just so, so many examples. And, and even now, in the last few days, where he can't stop himself from, from talking about uh, the Kung Flu and the, and the Chinese virus, um, you know, again, clearly trying to appeal to, to racial and ethnic uh, resentment and, and fears. Um, so it shouldn't surprise us that that his ads are also playing to racial fears and resentment.
1: Thank you, uh, uh, Professor. That's my Abramovich. personal opinion. Um.
2: <laughs>
4: Well, no, of course, I
1: mean, look, and of course, like I said, uh, Greg, this is the ground on which this election will be played out. And in the weeks ahead, we will certainly invite Republicans in here who will suggest uh, that uh, what they're doing is trying to make America safer. And we'll have that debate. It'll be a a, a particularly interesting one in uh, the months ahead. Greg, let's let's move on to talk about the selection of Nakeema Williams the first African-American woman to run the state Democratic Party, state senator, a longtime political activist, who was selected by the Democratic Party's uh, executive committee to replace John Lewis on the ballot. Um, It was a convoluted process that an awful lot of Democrats, including Mike Thurman, who on this show Monday said he didn't like the way it was unfolding, Um, but it was kind of made necessary by state law and uh, they ended up with a candidate who many of them, I think, are going to be – sad. many Democrats will be satisfied with.
2: Yeah, it was a very uh, extraordinarily convoluted process and very quick. I mean, what struck me was we don't even have Congressman Lewis's funeral details, but we already have a su- successor for his name on the ballot. That was set up by Georgia law, which required basically the next business day by 4.30 p.m., Um, A state party's executive committee has to determine whether or not to replace that name on the ballot, and Democrats were worried that not doing so – there's a little wiggle room in the law, but Democrats were worried that not doing so would clear the way for a Republican to win, a district that Democrats have held for decades um, that that is so Democratic that that Republicans have rarely even bothered to run for that district. Um, The criticism you heard um, over the last few days was not necessarily aimed at Nakeem Williams. It was aimed at the process. And right. there was a big call right. for a placeholder or for someone just to simply win that election and step down in January. Um, but other Democrats say that, you know, in the words of Gloria Butler, a state senator, that would be insane. You need to go through all this and then just to open it up, lose the seniority um, and, uh, and to deprive members of the fifth congress residents of the 5th Congressional District of a congressional representative for months longer.
1: Um, Amy, of course, uh, back when Brian Kemp decided to uh, accept applications for the Johnny Isaacson seat for the United States Senate and then said he'd go through those applications and pick someone who he would appoint to replace Isaacson until November, uh, Democrats mocked him uh, for using that process, and now Republicans felt they had an opportunity to do the same since Democrats ended up doing the same thing over the weekend. Uh, immediately after John Lewis's death, as Greg points out, terrible, just inappropriate timing, uh, but made necessary, opened up a process of application. They got more than a hundred applicants. The executive mm-hmm. committee looked them over, narrowed them down, picked five finalists. And the argument, uh, Amy, uh, by people like Theron Johnson, uh, uh, by people like John Lewis's uh, chief of staff, longtime chief of staff, was. Um, we want a more democratic process. We don't want an executive committee to make this decision. And theoretically, that makes sense. But so now the effort will be to change the law.
0: Yes. So I think first and foremost is the fact that the law needs to be clarified, and particularly the determination of when does the new name need to be put on the ballot. So that was actually where the real issue came in was the question of, It's not, in fact, clear when then you first have to say that you want to put on a new name. But then the question is, when do you have to give that name by? I think the other side of it is that, yes, I mean, no matter what, it was going to be a difficult situation. It had to move quickly. There had to be a decision made. What I was struck by was the attempt to make it at least as transparent and public as Possible. So, for example, anyone who wanted to could call in and could watch the executive committee, both, you know, the candidates gave um, the top five, gave pitches about why they should be chosen. And then the executive committee kept the entire vote and debate open. So it was at least done publicly. There was a Democratic vote. Well, certainly it was not of sort of all the voters at least that was there. And I think it was an attempt to at least show that, look, this isn't sort of ramming it through in the dead of night behind closed doors. We do want to make it open. And the other side of it is that obviously, Nikki Williams will still have to, in fact, sit for election uh, in November. And she will obviously, right, assuming she wants to run, you know, if she wins and then wants to run again, will come up for reelection in two years. Uh, she can be primaried at that time. There could be an open race. The issue becomes that if The policy was, or if the idea was followed that she would win the election, right? We're going to presume that she would win. She wins the election. She merely resigns, and so they call a special election. There's actually not a limit on how long it could be until that special election takes place. So what you could have is the seat being open for a year, two years, right? There actually is not a limit of how long that would be, and that is potentially even more concerning that there would be no representative as opposed to one that unfortunately had to be chosen under a really bad process.
1: Okay. So Nakima Williams will now run in uh, November. And because that's pretty much a safe, uh, uh, democratic seat, we imagine that she is quite likely to be elected to replace John Lewis, uh, in the United States house. Um, Greg, let's move on. And, and I want to bring everybody in on this one. Um, so the, the lawsuit between governor Kemp and, uh, mayor bottoms over, uh, over uh the governor uh telling the city of atlanta they cannot impose a mandatory mask requirement that it is uh it you know contrary to his emergency order uh we know that's moving forward the mayor and the governor are now at complete odds and i'd love for you to comment on that but i'm particularly interested since that's gotten a lot of attention they were in court yesterday two judges recused themselves for various reasons so the the, the, the uh, effort to move forward legally on this uh, had to be delayed. But I'm particularly interested in this aspect of the lawsuit, the 100-plus page lawsuit brought by the state against Mayor Bottoms it says that she is not allowed to speak out publicly on on the fact that she wants a mandatory mask requirement in place uh, contrary to the governor's orders. I, I I'm puzzled and a little confused on just what Governor Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr are trying to silence her on and what the implication of it is, Greg.
2: Yeah, basically a gag order on on the mayor of Atlanta asking her not to to go and and proclaim a mask mandate or other coronavirus restrictions that, that he says are illegal. Um, this is obviously um, what what legal experts have said is one of the most objectionable parts of of this lawsuit. Something that that will, that they they expect will even if the governor ends up winning the lawsuit, this part portion will, they expect will get struck down. And it f- triggered a very fierce response from from Mayor Bottoms, who said that people have fought and died for First Amendment rights, and that and that no court or no no governor can take away um, her calls to for people to wear masks and other coronavirus restrictions. And real quick, that also brings up the question of why the governor um, singled out Mayor Bottoms. I and mean, there's been a lot of talk about that. He insists that it wasn't because other, other cities, about a dozen other cities and counties have adopted mask mandates and he didn't sue them. Um, he insists that he targeted her city because she also went a step further and called for other coronavirus restrictions under the phase one guidelines like closing down um, uh, in-person dining. Um, she says those are just recommended. And that they were not restrictions. And so that's where this this really this clash is playing out. And you can see it's getting a little personal. I mean, I think uh, Sam, hard. before
1: we bring everybody else in, let's listen to what Mayor Bottom said on CBS News about uh, that, in fact.
0: If the governor of this state had his way, I would not be allowed to speak with you today. And so this blame game is most unusual uh, there were other cities in our state who instituted mask mandates and he did not push back against them. I don't know if it's because perhaps they were led by men um, or if it's perhaps because of the demographic in the city of Atlanta. I don't know what the answers are, um, but what I do know is that the science is on our side. When you look at yeah. the report, that the unpublished report from the White House, we are a red zone state and we are in danger.
3: Andra? You know, I think that there are a lot of issues here. I mean, there is the preemption issue. So the fact that the governor does outrank a mayor, which means that uh, his executive orders carry more sway than whatever a mayor's edict is, I think is, 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 is something that's important here. And so that's the legal ground by which Governor Kemp can kind of make this ruling. I think what Mayor Bottoms and the other mayors are challenging is that they see the refusal to enact a mass mandate as being a dereliction of duty. Um, And they're also challenging his interpretation of the science in terms of looking at whether or not it's actually safe for our communities to be as open as they are at this particular point. And so they're trying to push him to do better. And they're basically saying that if he's going to abdicate his responsibility in this um, respect, then they're going to assume responsibility for their communities. And they want to at least look active, even if they get stopped legally from being able to do that. So that's the important legal question. But then there is the sort of the political strategy question of this. And so the idea of targeting only Keisha Lance Bottoms, um, the idea of attempting to keep her (laughs) off of television um, so that she can't advocate for people publicly, like I don't like that's the part where I think uh, Governor Kemp is very much overstepping his bounds. And that has the potential to uh, backfire on him politically because it doesn't just look like. This is sort of you know, a difference of opinion, a different interpretation of the facts at hand. This just looks like this is some type of personal fight between um, these two. And I think at the end of it, especially given the gravity and the seriousness of the crisis, I'm not sure that he comes out looking the best by asserting his rights in this way.
4: I, I completely agree with Andra. Uh, I, I think it's a very strange position that he's taking, not only this trying to enforce his gag order, but uh, also – Uh, not allowing uh, localities, uh, counties and cities, to to, uh, enforce mask uh, requirements when he's traveling around the state uh, urging everyone to wear masks. Uh, And and yet he he says, no, we can't make it mandatory, and we know that that's the only way that it it really works. But there's something else going on here, I think, in the case of Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, Why is he targeting her? Uh, Not only is she an African-American woman very prominent one. She's the only one uh, of all of these leaders around the state who is uh, known to be on uh, Joe Biden's shortlist for the vice presidential nomination. Um, so I strongly suspect that uh, uh, one of the reasons that he is singling her out is uh, to try to knock her down uh, and and uh, do but do some damage to the uh, to the Biden presidential campaign. And to that, in that way, ingratiate himself to uh, President Trump.
0: There's also a really interesting sort of question here that has to do both with the legal battle that's happening as well as kind of the broader political strategy. Because what Governor Camp is really trying to argue is that the governor can override what it is that local elected officials are doing in emergency situations, and not just to say everybody has to do the same minimum, but to prevent people from going farther, right, from doing that extra. The issue is that Georgia Code is actually really explicit that even under emergency situations, localities are able to, quote, supplement what is happening. In other words, this idea of the barrier, and so there really is this question of whether or not he's on firm legal ground with putting in the ceiling provision, and more broadly of why this could actually really backfire, right, not only that he is sort of making it look like a personal fight really with the mayor as opposed to the broader one, is that he's saying even to those, right, leaders that agree with him, you can't do what's necessary where you live. So if, in fact, we start to see another outbreak, right? Remember, the original outbreak was in Dauphin County. We had lots of them up in Barstow. We had issues in Sumter County, right? These are not hotbeds of Democratic activity, right? There's new ones that are coming out up in Gilroy and places like this, right? These are, and so he's also saying to those leaders, you can't do what's necessary. I'm going to override that, and I'm even going to potentially take you to court over it and that's not a terribly good political strategy, especially in the midst of a uh, coming election, where, in many ways, you at least need those on your side to be with you, rather than sowing those types of divisions.
1: I've got to get to a break. Before I do, Greg Bluestein, uh, two comments that I want to share. It, number one uh, is I was interested in hearing Anthony Fauci uh, tell a reporter. The other day, yesterday I believe it was, maybe the day before, that he thought mandatory mask uh, 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 rules were going to be ineffective. He didn't support them because he felt they were unenforceable. I thought it was fascinating that the man who uh, many people, many Americans by majority in the polling, turned to to uh, get their best information about the virus thinks that mandatory masking is uh, unenforceable and therefore not shouldn't be followed. It should be voluntary. But the other thing, Greg, real quick. You know, Republicans aren't the only ones who know how to use coded language. In that statement from CBS News, we heard Mayor Bottoms talk about the reason she thought that he might have been, the governor might have been picking on Atlanta. And she talked about perhaps it's the demographic. Well, we know what Mm -hmm. she meant by that without saying it, Greg.
2: Yeah. and, And look, I mean, Savannah... Um, East Point, Georgia. There, there, there are other cities with led by African American leaders that, that 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 the governor didn't target. Um, what I really think is really, really important part of this entire debate that, that came out yesterday was the Georgia Municipal Association, which which advocates for cities and local governments, but is also has to kind of play it play nicely with with state leaders as well. Came out forcefully against this lawsuit and says that the governor was usurping local control. And there's already talk about potential repercussions. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. But that was a major moment in this in this legal battle. Uh,
1: GMA was uh, early in urging the governor to put restrictions in place. I mean, so, in fact, they've been on the opposite side of him in any number of cases so far. All right. I'm late for our break. Uh, we still have a lot of ground to cover. We're not going to get to all of it, but we'll do our best when we come back. <laughs> Alan Abramowitz, let me start with you, if I may, on this. Um, As we watch the pandemic unfold, uh, 538, which uh, does a great job of uh, pulling together a lot of polling data and uh, giving it to us once a week in a form that digests it all, I think. Uh, 538 pointed out that uh, through mid-May, the governors across the country uh, mostly had much higher or at least higher approval ratings than President Trump. Uh, But they also pointed out that as I looked at Gallup and other pollsters, that that was changing, especially for Republican governors in states with rising COVID-19 numbers, and especially in states that are battleground states led by Republicans right now. The governor's approval ratings in states that have reopened have gone down considerably, Alan.
4: Right. And one of the things that's happening right now, of course, is that we're seeing – that the, uh, the areas with the biggest outbreaks uh, in the country have moved from, from the Northeast and, and generally strongly Democratic states like New York and Connecticut, and New Jersey, to the South, the West, the Southwest, many uh, areas that are, have Republican governors and are strongly Republican states or swing states. Uh, and uh, uh, these Republican governors are under a growing pressure uh, then to respond uh, to, to the growing threat posed by the virus. Uh, certainly that's true in Florida, which has the worst uh, outbreak in the country, uh, and uh, where Joe Biden has been leading consistently in the polls by a margin of you know, five to seven points, which is um, very striking. Uh, it's true in Georgia, of course, uh, where the polls show the race very close between, uh, between Trump and Biden. Uh, where the Republican governor uh, here, uh, uh, we've seen some polling. Uh, uh, this was now a few weeks ago that Kemp was already one of the more unpopular governors in the country. Uh, and that clearly uh, was based in part on his response or large part on his response uh, to the to the pandemic. And uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing some more uh, some uh, new polling data when it comes out on how voters are responding to these individual governors, uh, We haven't seen a whole lot of that, and I I would be very interested in seeing some polling data on how voters in Georgia are responding to the ongoing controversy over uh, the governor's actions in response to the pandemic and and his uh, uh, attempt to uh, to muzzle the, the mayor of Atlanta.
1: We, we shouldn't say, uh, Andra, that uh, we should say that uh, uh, Georgia was not included in any of the roundup of research that we saw so far in terms of these latest polling numbers, in terms of whether Governor Kemp was more unpopular than he had been as a result of the COVID-19 crisis here. But, uh, Andra, it is certainly true that Republican governors have fared more poorly than Democratic governors in terms of their approval ratings in, as the virus has continued.
3: Yeah. And the last data that we saw, and I do have some issues with the sampling um, that they used, but like there was one poll that actually had uh, Governor Kemp's approval rating on handling the crisis at about the same place that, uh, that President Trump's was a couple of months ago where everybody else had, you know, kind of rally effects where you could see people uh, strongly approving of what they were doing. I think the big question here is party, I think, you know, correlates really highly with certain philosophical approaches to dealing with uh, the virus and prioritizing the economy, for instance, over that If we want to try to disentangle it, you know, a place to look would be Colorado. So there they have a Democratic governor, Jared Polis, who also opened up early um, and was also resistant to mask mandates for a while. And so if his numbers look very similar to the Republican governor's, then we can say that this is that, that it's not just party, even though I won't be able to completely disentangle party from this, but that this is also people responding to how their governors are behaving and the decisions that they're making.
1: Amy, you want to get a last word in here?
0: Um, I think is exactly right, that what we're really seeing is it's much more a correlation of how they're handling this and whether or not they seem to be, whether or not the governor seems to be responding to what is actually happening on the ground and the issues people are going through, right? It's recognizing that people are scared to go out, they're worried about they're going to catch the virus, that their family's going to catch the virus, but they're also worried about the fact that they're facing eviction, that they can't pay their mortgages, that Uh, They're not sure how they're going to put food on the table and that there seems to not be attention given to that. And that's harming those governors who don't seem to be highly responsive.
1: Greg Bluestein, final word from you. All of this that we've talked about on the show today is going to come into play as we watch this remarkable 2020 election cycle play out. Yes.
2: One hundred percent. And it's also going to come into play in 2022. And we've already seen Stacey Abrams um, and her allies just pound Governor Kemp for, uh, in their words, not living up to his own calls for, to to encourage mask usage just yesterday, uh, including uh, they, they sent out uh, pictures of 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 the governor in close quarters with with Vice President Mike Pence. So certainly this will be an issue uh, in 2022 as well.
1: Greg Blusey, you get the last word in today's show. So thank you, Greg. Thank you. Amy Steigerwald, Alan Abramowitz, Andre Gillespie for, as always, a terrific conversation. Uh, We're back tomorrow with uh, Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, and Patricia Murphy. Uh, We'll talk politics and much more on that edition of Political Rewind. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. See y'all tomorrow.